Hey, can I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to your Bibles, to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, which is a familiar story to many of us, I'm sure. We grew up with a story in Sunday school. Sometimes we just get the Sunday school version of this story. But this morning, I, I want to share with you, I think, something that the Lord's laid on my heart in the context of what we're doing with this Generations of Faith, faith uh, campaign. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we receive this. I'm going to jump right into the middle of it, and then I'll give you some background in just a moment. But here in verse 8, Esther chapter 4 verse 8 hear the word of the Lord it says he meaning Mordecai and we'll get introduced to Mordecai in just a moment he had also he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation speaking of the Jews which had been published in Susa to show to Esther and explain it to her and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. May God add his blessing to that holy word. You can be seated. Some of you may recognize this, but the truth is that the book of Esther is in fact kind of a controversial book. I, I don't know if you uh, maybe have ever heard of this, but, but if you read the book of Esther, one of the things that will strike you as you read it from cover to cover is that this book never once has the name of God in it. You won't find the name of God in its pages. In fact, several times through history, Jewish councils and even Christian councils were together and they disputed and, and, and often discussed the possibility of removing this book from the canon. It doesn't contain the name of God. But I want you to know this morning that I'm glad that this book is here. Because if we look at its story, the truth is we are going to find an important lesson and I'd like to share that with you. Now, I want to give you some background. And some of you, again, you know this story. You grew up with it in, in Sunday school. For some who maybe didn't grow up in the church, this is going to be new to you. But let's listen in. The year is 483 B.C. The Jewish people as a whole have been in exile in Persia. That's modern-day Iran for about 100 years. 
About 50 years earlier, King Cyrus of Persia had given an edict that the Jewish people were now allowed to go back to their homeland, go back to the promised land, and even rebuild the temple there. If you read your Bible, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are those books that refer to that time. But there was a large contingent of Jews who decided not to return to the promised land. In fact, Esther is this book that recounts this particular time, but there was a large group that said, you know what, we're rather comfortable here. We've assimilated to the culture. We're not ready to go back. And by the way, these Jews were somewhat controversial because some people suspected that they were living in disobedience. They were so much like the Babylonians and the Persians that, that maybe they were suspect in their faith and maybe they no longer trusted in God. So the book of Esther begins with a king named Ahasuerus, whose nickname was Xerxes, and he does what kings do best. He throws an enormous party for himself. In fact, in Esther 1, we read this, beginning with verse 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and the glory of his majesty. Wow, 180 days. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. Verse 8 goes on to say, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man whatever he wished. So imagine this. You could, you've got a sense of it. There's this massive party going on. It's days in the making. It keeps going on. There are no drinking restrictions whatsoever. What could possibly go wrong? So the king, in a drunken stupor, suddenly decides, you know what? Let's find the queen. And he orders his queen... Her name is Vashti, to come into the room, the Bible says, wearing her royal crown. Now, implied in that is she is not supposed to be wearing anything else. He wants to show her off to his drunk friends, for the Bible says she was lovely to look at. Not surprisingly, Vashti is not terribly excited about this idea, and she refuses to come, and good for her. But this embarrasses the king in front of his buddies, and so he goes back to his bedroom and begins to sulk, and one of his advisors comes in to him and says, King, this is serious. This is a problem. You've got to do something about this, and not just for your sake, but for the sake of all men everywhere. In fact, and boy, in my mind, this is a keeper verse, if you think about it. Verse 18 in that passage says, this very day, the Persian and Median women who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to the disrespect and discord. You hear what they're saying? King, if when we command our wives to come out naked in front of our drunk buddies and she won't do it, what's the kingdom coming to? We've got to fix this. So Vashti gets kicked to the curb. But now Ahasuerus needs a new queen. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 comes up with a brilliant plan along with his advisors to hold a contest similarly or uh, very eerily similar if you think about it to The Bachelor that we watch on television or at least some of you do. 
and he's ordered to find a new queen, he has a contest. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 2, it reads this way, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins, which is not usually how you describe the women on The Bachelor, but that's a whole other point. May they find the young virgins for the king. Then let the young, women who, young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appeals to the king, and he followed it. What a great idea, he says. Now, I want you to think about the implications here. This is how this contest worked. You entered the king's harem, and the king would try you out. You'd appear before the king. You might answer some questions. Maybe you'd do some talent of some sort, but then you'd sleep with the king, and he'd make his choice. That's the contest that Esther enters. And the Bible says, and Esther had a beautiful figure, and she was lovely to look at. Now, let's stop right there, and let's be honest with one another. Esther is going to, return, to turn into a remarkable woman of faith. But at this point, she is not there. She is sleeping with the king out of wedlock in order to get a position of power and fame. This is not noble. It's not good. In fact, in verse 20, verse 20 tells us that she hid the fact that she was a Jew. In other words, in order to do that, she was hiding the fact that she had any faith in God whatsoever. And so as we think about this, the good news is she won the contest. But the bad news is she did it by taking an immoral path to get there. And so now we maybe begin to understand why God didn't want his name in the book. It's a hot mess. Now, Esther has an older cousin that actually raised her. Esther was an orphan. Mordecai actually took her in and raised her. I, I'm not going to go into all the details, but in chapter 3, he learns about a plot to kill King Ahasuerus. He stops it, and he saves the king. Chapter 3 also tells us that the king, at, that, at one moment, decides to name a man named Haman, his, his, his main guy, his prime minister. He honors Haman above every other man. And it doesn't take us long to figure out that Haman is the villain of the story. He's the, the Michigan Wolverine of the story. And so King Ahasuerus promotes Haman to this rank, makes him prime minister, and as a result, everyone is supposed to bow down to Haman. He's the king's top guy. But the problem is there's, there's one person who refuses to do so. It's Mordecai. Now, Mordecai has shown some evidence of compromise, and not every decision he's made has been necessarily a great one, but, but Mordecai is beginning to live by principles, and he begins to stand with his principles, and somewhere along the line, he says, I'm not going to do this any longer. He seems to be a relatively good man. He, he took care of Esther. He brought her into his family. He begins to stand for his principles, and he refuses to bow down to Haman. I'm not going to do it. In fact, in verse 3 of chapter 3, it says, Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? And suddenly we're given a hint. 
of maybe what this book is all about. Maybe this is the question that is central to the entire book. Who is the king? Who should we obey? Who should I acknowledge and bow down to? And the fact that Mordecai refuses to obey this command and refuses to give Haman any honor or due makes Haman angry. And when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, he says, well, I'll show him. I'll not only kill Mordecai, I'll kill all the Jews alongside of him. And he comes up with a plot to have all the Jews killed in the kingdom. And I think, boy, where have we heard that before? There's nothing more sinister and evil than anti-Semitism. I've never understood how Christians could ever be associated with any anti-Semitic elements. But he presents this plan, this plan to to kill all of the Jews, to the king. And Ahasuerus, you know, he he evidently has a pretty hands-off approach to governing. And he tells him, fine, whatever, I'm, I'm working on my next party. And so chapter 4 begins, and Mordecai, who hangs around outside the palace, hears about this plot to kill the Jews. And so he sends a message to Queen Esther and tells her, listen, you've got to do something about this young lady. Esther sends a message back. Mordecai, you do remember what happens to women who, who disagree with the king. He's not exactly an enlightened feminist, queen or no queen. The law, in fact, says for you to come, you've got to be invited. Imagine when, if I do, a woman has the audacity to confront the king and disagree with one of his policies, tell him he's made a bad government decision, he's going to have me killed. The law says if anybody comes in the presence of the king and they were not invited to do so, they are to be killed and for this little Jewish girl to appear before the poster child of male chauvinism and tell him he doesn't know what he's doing or how he's running his government this is not going to go well but then we have Mordecai's response verse 13 Mordecai says do not think that because you are in the king's house you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, if you shut up and do nothing, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now, we have seen that Queen Esther did not start out well in her walk of faith. But this is a moment, and friends, I've got to tell you, we all have those defining moments in our life when we determine our destiny and the kind of people we really are going to be. This is one of those moments for Queen Esther. In chapter 4, verse 16, this is her response to Mordecai. She says to the, to the messenger, go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. 
do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. Now, I want you to see what is happening here. This is a critical moment. It's a defining moment. She realizes suddenly, I, I've got to do things differently than I've been doing them. I, I can't do this by myself. I need help. I need you, Mordecai, and all the Jews in this city to pray for me, to fast with me. I need to go before the Lord and pray and fast. I need God's help. And the Bible says when this is done, I'll go to the king, even though it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. See, something inside Esther is changing. This woman who thought it was all about her and getting ahead and doing all these things to do so, it didn't matter what it took. Suddenly she realizes that the world is bigger than her. Something is happening in Esther. Suddenly she realizes the world is not about her. Her life is a part of a bigger plan. And maybe God's calling her to do something difficult. Chapter 5, Queen Esther enters the palace. The king is sitting there. Evidently, he's still captivated by her beauty, and he suddenly raises a scepter, which is the symbol, the indicator, that it's okay, you're safe. And he says, Queen, my queen, what can I do for you? I'm sure that young woman at that moment breathes a, a mighty sigh of relief, but, but she knows she's on fragile ground. And so she says to the king, you know, I, I would really like to invite you and Haman to a banquet that I'm having tomorrow. Now, isn't she smart? She's speaking the king's love language here. He loves parties. He loves to eat and celebrate. This is great. And so he agrees, and Haman is excited too. And so the banquet comes, and it goes. And to our surprise, if you read this story, she doesn't mention Haman's sinister plot. But she does invite them both to continue the party tomorrow night. I can imagine Haman... He's feeling pretty good. He's ecstatic. He is in with not only the king, but now he's in with the queen too. He is a part of the power team in the kingdom. It's incredible. He's feeling so good. He's headed outside of the palace, and by golly, what does he see there? Right there at the edge of the palace gate is sitting Mordecai. Mordecai isn't standing. Mordecai isn't bowing there. Mordecai is taking the L of the loser sign and, and, and as, as Haman passes by. It makes him that much more angry. It ruins the mojo. He is mad. And he says, I've got to do something about it. And so he decides, I'm not going to wait. So he, he, he goes home and he orders a gallows, 75 foot high. And his intent is, I'm going to put Mordecai on those gallows tomorrow as soon as I get a chance. But something funny happens. 
If you know the story, the king can't sleep that night. Just can't go to sleep, and so he orders his attendant. He says, listen, read me a story. Read a book. And the attendant just happens to go to the library, and he picks out a book, and he begins to read aloud to the king to try to settle him down and put him to sleep. But, but the king listens to the story, and wouldn't you know it, it just happens to be the story of Mordecai and the fact of how he saved the king's life. It's the king's record of, of, of this, this amazing plot to kill the king, but he was saved by this Jew Mordecai. And the king suddenly thinks, well, wait a second here. The story didn't sound like it was finished because what did we do for Mordecai? How did we honor him? And they say, well, I don't think we did. I don't think anything happened for Mordecai. The king says, well, that's got to change. So morning comes and Haman arrives early. King, king uh, Ahasuerus says, hey, man, I, I got a question. Hey, man, I got a question. Got it? Okay. I tried to keep these interesting. Help me out here. Okay. Hey, man, I got a question. What should be done for the man that the king wants to honor? the king says and of course Haman is thinking well this is my day this is how it works king wants to honor me even more this is all about me and so Haman says well put a wreath around his neck let him be paraded in the streets on the king's chariot let the officials of the king go before this man and shout out this is how this is the man the king loves that'll do it that'll give him some honor and the king says you know Haman that's a great idea let's honor Mordecai shall we and would you be the guy who runs in front of the chariot shouting this is the man that the king loves this is irony of ironies this is funny this is a great story well after the parade after the charade how do you think Haman's feeling well, of course, he's madder than ever. He's fuming with rage, but he knows today I'm not killing Mordecai. And he kicks his plan, however, to kill all the Jews in high gear. But there's a banquet to be had, and so that evening he arrives, and the king arrives, and Esther is there, and they begin to have conversation. They begin to eat, but this time Esther chooses to tell the king about the plot to kill the Jews and that she is a Jew and therefore she, her life is in danger. And the king who is so pleased with Esther says, listen, who would conceive of such a plot? And Esther looks at Haman and I think she points the finger and he's just finishing up his mouth full of mutton. And she says, he's right there. Well, the king gets enraged. He storms out of the room. He is so angry. And Haman, understanding the, the severity of the situation, goes over to Esther, and he leads on her, and he grabs her by the dress, trying to plead for mercy, but something happens. He begins to fall, and he actually falls on top of her. We don't know exactly how this all happens, but guess who walks back into the room while this is occurring? It's not a good picture. The king says, are you now trying to make out with my wife too? And so quickly, the king orders Haman to be hung on the next available gallows, which, by the way, conveniently has already been built just outside the palace gates. And so the gallows meant for Mordecai 
Haman himself is taken up and he dies right there. And so Esther, <laughs> because of that defining moment, who got a really rough start in life, who made some terrible decisions, in that one defining moment, she changes and the Jews are saved. And the story, which has been told from generation to generation and generations to come, and a few generations after this, think about it, one of the descendants of the people that she saved that night would be visited by an angel, and that angel would tell that young woman, you are going to give birth to the Messiah. And Jesus came into the world, and we believed on him, and we're here today right here now I want you to think about this story there are many ways we could approach this but I want to give you three things at least to think about and take home with you as we wrap up this generations of faith campaign can I give you the first lesson the first lesson is simply this God can use Mordecai's and he can use Esther's too what do I mean by that well, I guess I would say this. Mordecai's are the kind of people you would expect to go to church. They're, they're, they're pretty staid. They're almost boring, in fact. They're, they're the people who are pretty good. They, they've done some things, you know. That they haven't always gotten it right by any measure. The worst thing they've done is maybe got a traffic ticket or forgot to recycle or something like that. But they're pretty good people, and, 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 and they, they, they're growing in their faith. They're the people you would expect to be in church. God uses Mordecai's, and maybe you're a Mordecai today, and God loves you, and God wants to use you. But I also want you to know that God also uses Esther's too. People who have made a whole lot of compromises, made a whole lot of really dumb mistakes. In fact, they're just sinners. Everybody knows it. They know it too. And they wonder, can God use me or is my past too much? Can God use me? Listen, one of the things we learn from this book is that God uses both. Esther is not the most upstanding character in the Bible. We know that. She is never commended in the New Testament. Both Mordecai and Esther are still in Persia several generations after they've been given the opportunity to go back to the promised land that puts a mark of suspicion on them and yet Esther is the person God uses in that moment to preserve the messianic line that becomes that blessing to the entire world you see God loves doesn't he to use unlikely weak instruments that's the way he does it. Esther is an orphan, a foreigner, a young woman with a checkered past. And my point is, it doesn't matter what your history is. What about your future? It doesn't matter what your ability even is. It's about your availability. Some of you this morning, you are here, you've been put in a specific place 
Maybe you got there by hook or crook. Maybe you made good decisions. Maybe you made bad decisions, but you have been put in a specific place. Maybe you haven't always made the right decision, but I'm going to tell you this morning that can change. You can make a decision to follow God, to put him first, to trust him with everything. Maybe you have some regrets. Join the clan, join the party. But God can do a new thing in your life if you just say yes to him. This today might be your defining moment. Will you say yes? But the second thing I want you to notice is this. God has been working in your life whether you've recognized it or not. You see, you're right. You can't find God's name in this book. Not one time. But, But the working of God is all over these pages. His fingerprints are everywhere. I mean, think about the coincidences that just so happen in Esther's story. Esther just so happens to find herself queen. She won the contest. She happens just so to be Mordecai's cousin. Mordecai just so happens to hear about a plot to kill the king. It just so happens that he doesn't get honored right then. Haman comes along and he seeks to destroy the Jews. It just so happens that one night the king can't sleep. And it just so happens when they go to the library, they pick that one book that talks about the story of Mordecai saving the king's life. It just so happens he has Haman honor Mordecai. It just so happens that when the king needs a gallow for Haman, one has already been prepared. On and on and on and on and on. The coincidences. Do you realize what Esther tells us about history? God has the whole system rigged. He's written a story. He knows the end. He knows exactly about your life and how it is to intersect with his plan of redemption. And so what that means to me this morning as I think about this, there's a reason you're here. There's a reason that you are a part of our church. There's a reason that you're listening to my voice. It just so happens that you are here this morning. It just so happens that you're a part of our church. It just so happens that we're asking one another to make a commitment to help us love people to life in Jesus Christ in an extraordinary way. The coincidences of our lives are rigged so that we can be part of God's plan to bring blessing to the world. And so my question this morning is, what will the story be when it's written of you and me? What's our story? Maybe we had a past. Maybe we did some good. But you've been blessed and chosen for something bigger. This is my third point. If Esther teaches us anything, it's this. Life is a risk. So risk it for something that lasts, that matters. The word perish 
or the word destroy, the, the Hebrew word is abad, occurs in this book more than it occurs in the entire Pentateuch. In other words, as you're reading this book, you're always getting a sense of danger. You're always aware of the fact that, that everyone is in danger in this book, that, 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 that the plan of God is just hanging on by a thread. And yet in the background is the certainty of God's love and promise. We talked about covenant last week. God's promises were still true. God had not given up on his people. God's plan was going to happen. And so we can take risk for things that truly matter, that we truly know. Do we believe God or not? And so when Mordecai says to Esther, you can be silent or speak. You can do something or not. But listen, he said, don't you think that just because you're in the king's palace that you're safe? Because you're not. Don't think because you are royalty you're going to get by. Listen, and we all need to hear this because listen, <laughs> I thought about this this morning. King Ahasuerus never had it as good as any of us in this room. Think about his palace the food you got up in a warm bed with a furnace an alarm clock a warm shower you could have a breakfast you'll have a meal that that the king would just be amazed at using an, I mean you think about the luxuries you have compared to King Ahasuerus and he would envy you he would be jealous of you he would there's not a one of us that wouldn't fit that category, not in this room. We have been given so much and we fool ourselves into believing that's because God wants to make us comfortable. Life is a risk. You're not as safe as you think you are. Safety is a myth. Our lives are filled with vulnerability. Listen, your stock portfolio can be a race tomorrow. Your life can turn upside down this afternoon. The point is, we don't choose between safety and risk. We choose between a risk for God or a risk without him. And listen, Queen Esther was not confident that her life would be saved. But there was a point where she said, you know what, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust that his purposes are true. He's going to accomplish what he says. And she bet her life on God's purposes. And it turns out that betting our lives on God's purposes is a pretty good bet. Amen? And so this morning, this is what I'm asking you to think about. This is what I'm asking you as your pastor to consider. Why has God placed you where you are? Why has God given you that ability? Why has God given you those resources? Why has God given you so much? Could it be for more than just to make you comfortable? Could it be that he wants you to be a part of helping to save people that God loves. That's what this campaign really is about. It's allowing us to keep doing ministry. 
Yes, taking care of our obligations. We've built this building. There are things that we could talk about there. But at the heart of this is that we want to be able to continue to be free to preach Jesus, love people to life, people who are dead and don't know him, and those who come into our facility, that they might be discipled to grow in grace and mercy, that those Esthers who come, maybe with a past, would rejoice because they said yes in their defining moment. But maybe that never happens unless each of us in this room have our defining moment. And we say, Lord, I'm in. I'll do my part. The money is almost secondary. But this is what I'm asking you to do this morning. Some have already made their commitments. We saw that earlier. But I'm asking every one of us, if we have prayed about it and thought about it, to take this uh, commitment card that's in your bulletin and I'd like you to put your name down. Now, there are a couple of different ways I thought about doing this. I thought maybe we could put our name down and then pass it to your neighbor and let them fill out the amount for you. I thought, man, that would be fun. That would be faith, right? You could be more generous than you ever thought of. But then I thought, you know, maybe that takes something from us. And so I'm asking you to do this. Why don't you put your name there? And before you leave today, if you're ready, and if you aren't, listen, this is between God and you. I will never know who or what was given. I'll know the amounts at the end, the, the final, but that's it. But I'd like to invite you to, to, to fill that card out. Give us your number, the, the commitment that God has laid on your heart. He's told you. He's shared that with you. And then before you leave, we're not going to take up a collection. We're not going to pass the plate. But just in that one of those offering boxes in the atrium, if you put that in there as a sign of your commitment and saying, Lord, I want to be a part of what you're going to do. This is my defining moment. This is a defining moment for us as a church to see where God wants to take us in the future. I'd love it if we exceeded that million and we just got rid of the entire debt altogether. <laughs> That'd be exciting, wouldn't it? And maybe my vision isn't big enough. Maybe I need to risk more. But I've certainly believed that God is going to do something. And when we do what he's called us to do, when we do it together, amazing things happen. Redemption happens. We see that in Esther's life. I wonder if we will see it in ours. Let's pray. Father, it is a privilege to consider and think about the book of Esther and the challenges there and how, Holy Spirit, your name is all over that story. And Father, I pray that this morning we could see through clear eyes that you have stamped your name on the events of our lives. Even when we've made bad decisions, you are a God of redemption. You can turn things around. And Lord, I pray that the commitments we would make today would be commitments of trust and faith and belief that, Lord, you've called us to be about the business of seeing others love to life in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we honor you, and we just pray, Lord, that you would honor this time as we close this service. You have been good to us.
Thank you for the privilege of being a part of your work in this world for generations and generations.